Hello and welcome to Poetry Non-Stop. I'm Patrick Widdis and on this episode I'm joined by someone with a lifelong love of poetry and the performing arts, Ken Cumberledge. Ken is going to introduce a poetic form and tell us how putting restraints on your writing can boost your creativity. If possible, I recommend having Ken's poem in front of you to refer to. You can access it via the link on the blog at poetrynonstop.com. And when you are ready, here's Ken with his poem. This poem is called Workshop. We are struggling all to find new levels of creativity, looking for treasure. Recycled mythical adventures haunt us and embroider. Fear grows. Externalize the demons. Lay aside your poise and think about dying in battle. Take the risk of loss and change. Thank you, Ken. And I think you've uh, captured an experience that uh, many of us will be familiar with uh, who uh, write poetry regularly. Um, it's uh, an interesting form and quite an interesting uh, process you use to write that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, for a, quite a long time now, I've been going every Sunday to the uh, write-in sessions um, organised by Allographic, run by Faye Roberts. And uh, what, we te- what we do every week, um, it's, it's not a formal workshop situation, but something that we like to do um, is called bibliomancy, which is a rather fancy term for choose a random piece of text and see what happens. So we'll grab a book off a shelf and we'll go, right, pick a page number, choose a paragraph. Okay, that's what we're going to work from. And um, you can just use it as a springboard for general creativity. But very often I find um, it helps me if I'm given some kind of restraint. So I often set myself the challenge that I can only use the words that actually exist in the piece of text we're working from. And you can only, you know, having used a word once, you can only use it the once, not again. Um, I do allow myself to construct words out of bits of other words if I'm desperate, or indeed to contract words to make them into other words. Like for instance, the word contribute, take out the B-U and you're left with contrite, etc. And that particular poem came from um, on the day in question, we actually chose two pieces of uh, text from two different books, very different books. The first one was uh, um, a book about um, making clothes and being green about it called So Eco by Ruth Singer. And this is the passage. If you are struggling to find large pieces of fabric in the colors and patterns you want, think about dyeing printing and hand painting recycled fabrics to create what you're looking for. Embroidery and other embellishments can transform a plain piece of sheeting into a one-off treasure. Now, I think even from that first piece of text, you can sort of hear the words that I, I chose and used in the poem. And the other piece of text, totally different, was from a book about Celtic mythology called Anamkara by John O'Donohue. And this says, The demons will haunt us if we remain afraid. All the classical mythical adventures externalize the demons. In battle with them, the hero always grows, ascending to new levels of creativity and poise. Each inner demon holds a precious blessing which will heal and free you. To receive this gift, 
you have to lay aside your fear and take the risk of loss and change, which every inner encounter offers. I think you can hear how I've actually taken whole chunks of text. Take the risk of loss and change is basically the whole of the end of the poem. And uh, there was, however, another restraint placed upon me there, which was I decided I was going to write it in the form of what's called an abracadabra poem. Uh, this is something that Faye Roberts thought up. It's based on the occult abracadabra sigil, um, you know, the inverted triangle, which begins with the word abracadabra at the top and then loses a letter each time so that it ends up with just the letter right. A. Well, instead of that, you do it with syllables. So if I read the poem again, but just line for line, the, the first line is 11 syllables, the second is 10, and so on. First line. We are struggling all to find new levels of. Second line, creativity, looking for treasure. Third line, recycled mythical adventures, etc. So looking at it, although those people who have clicked on the link and who can actually see the document can see that the, the fourth line kind of spoils it a bit because it's not a perfect triangle shape. But I was more concerned with getting the right number of syllables than making the poem look a perfect triangular shape. And what it, this demonstrates, particularly the, this poem, is that when I started constructing it, I didn't know I was writing a poem about the thing we were actually doing or trying to do as, as poets in a workshop situation. I was just trying to, to put words together in a, in a form that made some kind of sense. And this is, this is what bibliomancy does. It acts like a kind of literary Rorschach test. You know, it, it brings out stuff that may be in your subconscious that you never knew was there. And it may not necessarily produce a poem you'd want to publish or perform in public, but it loosens up the cogwheels in your head and allows stuff to come out that you could later possibly, you know, exploit for writing a, what you might call a proper poem that you can make use of. Well, it's uh, great you uh, produced uh, such an interesting and coherent uh, poem from those two passages, uh, you would have imagined that that uh, kind of a poem would have come out of those texts, although there is that uh, sort of creativity linking them all together. Yes, um, true. Yeah. yeah, I think um, a lot of people listening to this might uh, be thinking that it all sounds terribly complicated and all these restrictions will probably be impossible to work with. Um, what, what would you say to them? I'd say don't worry. I'd say, hey, it's only an exercise. Try it out. And it's a bit like when a professional photographer, um, sometimes as a challenge to themselves, they do a similar thing. Instead of taking a great bag full of lenses out with them, they decide to use just one focal length lens and it forces them to think differently about composition and shooting angles and all that kind of stuff. It, it forces them not to be lazy basically. And this is, this is what using these sort of constrictions, restraints does. It, it, it's actually rather liberating because you're no longer worrying about, I'm trying to create a work of art here. And mm, does that line fall in the right way? You're just trying to drag something out of the text and sort of cobble it together. It, it's a bit like, you know, William Burroughs uh, cut-ups. 
Um, the first time I ever saw the technique was when I watched the, back in 1975, the Alan Yentob uh, documentary about David Bowie, cracked actor, and it showed him actually sort of cutting up bits of text and rearranging bits of paper. And that was the first time I ever tried it was back in 75, having seen David Bowie do it on the floor of his dressing room. Yeah, the great thing about these kind of exercises that uh, it uh, gives you some focus if you're working without any limitations, you're, you're sort of essentially faced with the entire English language, like some billion piece jigsaw puzzle. So exactly. you have exactly. that's like it's like being told to go and swim the ocean. Oh, uh, right. You know, whereas if you say just just swim to the end of that to the end of that lane in the swimming pool that's that's a, that's an easier challenge it's a, that is that is a constraint and it it kind of makes the thing a bit more manageable yes and uh so yeah i'd certainly recommend trying that we have the, the details of the exercise uh, on the blog and uh your poem and um well i'll, I'll uh, talk a bit about um, how I attempted this. And it was interesting, actually, you mentioned uh, photography earlier because the uh, book I chose to do this uh, is called The Photo Book. Um, mm -hmm. It's a collection of photos by various photographers and each one has a paragraph or two of text about the uh, picture and the photographer. Um, so I chose two of the photos and uh, like you, I started off uh, just trying to construct a, a poem using the accompanying text. But I also then began to draw on the pictures as well. So it's mm. uh, also became an ekphrastic poem. And the two pictures I chose were of, one was of some nomads praying in the desert in Afghanistan at sunset. Mm -hmm. And the other was a fisherwoman holding her net up over her face. And uh, the final poem ended up drawing more on the first poem, but there are some elements from the second uh, picture uh, as well. Um, and uh, this is the poem which I ended up with. Uh, it's called Afghanistan. In this moment, distorted by so many conflicting forces, nomads offer their prayers to the red sun crowning the dunes as once again an uneasy peace unravels across the land. Light fades in the west. When night falls in the desert, it is so dark, so very cold. Hmm. That's a wonderful metaphor. When night falls in the desert, it is so dark, so very cold. I mean, that's literally chilling, given, um, obviously, we all know what it's about. Mm. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I know that yeah. uh, part came later on in the process uh, as I said I started off working with the text but then as the poem began to take shape I was then able to just choose the words which I felt were best for it and it was easier yeah. to do that then so yeah again if you feel that it's um very restrictive well you don't have to uh follow the rules rigidly no there. because it's it's yeah. all self-imposed restrictions anyway and you can break out of them at any time it's 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 like often it's just something to kick start the motor on your little two-stroke you know and then you're off yeah 
Yeah, and uh, then the the form was uh, interesting to work with as well. Uh, quite uh, frustrating at times, sort of getting the <laughs> syllables right. And you sort of you you've done it, yeah. and then you realise you've got uh, one too many, one extra. But then again, yeah. that really makes you look at it and keep revising it, so it's hopefully stronger in the end. Yeah, you spend an awful lot of time counting on your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going, shall I make struggling into two syllables or can I get away with it as three? Struggling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's great to hear your poem and um, you. uh, talk us through that. Um, it's uh, almost like there's a bit of witchcraft in there with the bibliomancy and the abracadabra. Um, mm. But um, yes. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope it um, mm. helps everyone uh, conjure up some new poems. I can reassure people that no chickens were slaughtered in the production of this poem. Right. Great. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, talk then about um, how you got into poetry, because it, it's something which has uh, been you've been interested in uh, for, for your whole life, really, I understand. Yeah, I'm the, cl the classic case of, you know, um, the person who writes, and when you ask them, when did you start? They say, oh gosh, when I was a kid in school. And I, I, I always had a facility with language. In fact, I now realize that I was really privileged in that I had a facility with language that other kids maybe didn't you know the teacher would write a long word on the blackboard and i only had to look at it once to know how it was spelt and the teacher would pronounce the word and i only had to hear it once to know how it was pronounced that was it and uh words just seemed to drop into my head and and fit and stay there you know and i loved making things up i loved rhyming i loved verse i loved telling stories and Right about the age of 12, I was, I was churning out poems and stuff. And my English teacher at that time, uh, to whom I will always be grateful. Again, this is the stereotypical story, folks, of the kid who had the good English teacher. He was a wonderful guy called Robert Ballard. And if you're still alive and you're listening to this, Robert, thank you. He noticed that I had this love of writing particularly versy things and poems and stuff and lyrics. And he said, come back to the classroom after school's finished and we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at, at what you've been doing and we'll, we'll sort of talk about it. And this became a regular appointment. I would bring my stuff to him and we'd discuss it and he would not so much workshop it, but he would talk about, you know, ways of expressing things and inner rhymes and all that kind of stuff. And he'd lend me books of poems by poets who weren't on the curriculum. So I got exposed to a broader range and generally kind of broadened my cultural horizons. Do you remember any of the poets you were introduced to then? Oh, gosh, I remember Tom Gunn, I think, being introduced to him. Uh, Adrian Mitchell, who of course I was born in Birkenhead, so uh, he was he was a he was a local poet, and because in, in school it was all kind of you know the First World War poets and stuff, which, which I adored. I mean, I was you know I thought I learned a lot from reading Wilfred Owen about things like alliteration and symbolism and all that kind of thing. But yeah, those are the only two names that readily come to mind. But um, but yeah, he was just. He was just really helpful because, I mean, he was, you know, he was taking time out of his own life to help me out. He didn't have to do this. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. 
And then um, by the time I'd sort of hit my mid-teens, I'd started going to uh, poetry, well, we shan't call them open mic nights because we didn't have microphones and PAs in those days. You just had to make yourself heard. They were called open floor. Um, I was going to poetry things in Liverpool at uh, places like the Philharmonic Pub. And I remember there was a pub called the Why Not, which had a sort of basement bar. And the, those were run by um, ah, is it Harold and Sylvia Hikins. And one day i eventually summoned up the courage to get up and i should say at this point that a, a major factor here was that from a very early age i had a terrible stammer i mean crippling stammer and i was bullied for it and the great revelation of finally plucking up the courage to get up and perform a couple of my poems in front of a pub full of people was that once i was on a stage as it were with an audience no stammer and that blew my mind. And that's why eventually, much later on, I, I became a professional actor. <laughs> but before I got into the acting, uh, basically performing my stuff on the Liverpool pub scene was how I cut my performance teeth. That's how I learned to handle a crowd and, and how I, I learned, you know, that an audience is not your enemy. An audience wants to have a good time. And the only way they're going to have a good time is if you have a good time as a performer. And yeah, just being able to speak to a room full of people and know that they are listening, that, that was a revelation from having grown up where trying to get words out of my mouth and thinking that nobody was listening and being laughed at for it. It, you know, it, was, uh, it was like turning on a light switch. Amazing. How did you find the courage to get up that first time um, when uh, you had a, a stammer on, on top of the uh, usual anxiety anyone would feel uh, about a situation like that? Well, I think one of the things was, just to wind back in history a bit, my dad was into electronics. He was a radio ham. And he had a lot of rather fancy equipment, including a professional tape deck called a Vortexian. And um, I was allowed to play with this stuff. And so I would sit there in my bedroom with a rather nice ribbon microphone and this big tape recorder, and I would record stuff that I'd written. And when I was talking to the microphone, as I am now, no stammer. In my little bedroom at home, I could perform comedy sketches, terrible comedy sketches, extremely derivative of whatever was on the radio at the time, and, and do my poems and, and little, little sort of make up little dramas, and I learned to edit tape and so on. And so I, I already had a, a kind of a realization that when I was performing something, I didn't stammer. But of course, that was in private to a microphone. The the moment when I got up, it was almost like I had to. I had this stuff inside me. I thought, well, you know, I've written this stuff. How do I get people to notice it? I've got to get up and perform it. And it was, I mean, the first time I got up, I was rather drunk, but that was enough to get me over that little hurdle. And then the next time I was stone cold sober and I've been stone cold sober as a performer ever since you know I never if I'm doing an open mic I'll never drink before I get up to perform once I've done my bit I can I can have a pint but um, 
it's mineral water until I've done my bit. Yeah, so uh, then uh, you ended up going into acting. Yeah, I um, I, I started doing um, a theatre studies diploma course at Mabel Fletcher College in Liverpool, and I had intended to get into stage management. But as as the way the course was structured, all the students had to do a certain amount of acting. And so I was required to play uh, Jimmy Porter in a sketch section taken from Look Back in Anger. And the the tutors saw me in that and took me to one side and said, you really sure you want to be a stage manager, Ken? Because that was good. We think you should consider going in the direction of acting. And so I, I, I shifted gear and uh, yeah, my, my first professional job was as an acting ASM at Liverpool Playhouse in the end of 1980 in the winter season. So that was kind of stage management with various little parts, you know, and, uh, and af after that I was, yeah, I was an actor for 20 odd years. Great. Um, you've uh, been very fortunate with uh, teachers and other people uh, guiding you in the right direction. Indeed, indeed. So when did you get back into poetry? Yes, um, throughout the sort of acting career years, my I, I sort of stopped writing poetry around about 1980, 81. And I, I carried on writing, I, I wrote song lyrics for a band I was in briefly, and I carried on writing um, strange short stories and things, but eventually even that fizzled out. And so for about 20 years, I, I didn't write a thing. And then what made the big change was in 2015, uh, my wife died of cancer. Um, we'd, we'd been together for 28 years at that point. And the usual thing, grief overwhelmed me and sort of needing a mechanism by which to process it. I sought solace in my oldest and most faithful friend, poetry. And uh, it wasn't long before I was looking for somewhere to perform it. So um, in 2016, I walked into Jernitz Bar in Norwich uh, to a group called Poetry at Jernitz. And they just made me feel so totally at home from the moment I walked in. And I'll always be grateful to them for that. And that was me getting back into, you know, I was doing the same thing suddenly that that I've been doing as a teenager and loving it just as much. Uh, great. That's uh, really inspirational. And uh, you're not the first person to come on here and talk about poetry in a way that makes it seem to have almost a, a medicinal quality. There's, there's something I'd like to say, actually, related to that is that um, I don't know how many other poets get this um, feeling, but I, I noticed that as I carried on with this new wave of writing, that my work became increasingly uh, personal and self-confessional. And there comes a point where you kind of sit there thinking, oh God, am I writing another poem all about me? God, isn't this terribly sort of self-referential and narcissistic and all that? I'd just like to say to any other poets who get that feeling, stop worrying. The more personal and even specific your work becomes, it actually miraculously seems to speak to more people. It's surprising. It's like, if I could draw an analogy, in the 1950s, the British film industry got this daft idea that in order to sell British films to America, they had to cast American actors 
well, they couldn't afford the posh ones, so they got all a load of uh, American B actors. And you can see these movies on that uh, moving pictures or um, no, what's it called? There's a there's a di uh, ne never mind. There's a digital channel that's that shows loads of old movies, and you can see these old British films where it's all set in the East End Docklands, and but mysteriously, there's one American actor in it for some reason because the the British film people were thinking maybe we can you know persuade the Americans to distribute this product if it's got a yank in it. Well, it didn't work. And in fact, what really worked was when films became particularly British, like the Ealing comedies that sold in America. So writing about yourself and your personal experience is not something to be afraid of. It's not self-indulgent, provided the end result comes out as a decent work of art. And you mustn't, you mustn't assume that just because you're writing about your particular life experience, that this somehow alienates it from other people's experience. It's surprising what, what people will hook onto. You know, I might, I might write about, about an experience related to me being bisexual. It doesn't mean that that poem is only of any use to fellow queer people or whatever. People will, I mean, personal experience is the human experience. It is universal. The underlying emotions and motivations and so on remain the same, regardless of the framework within, the, within which they're happening. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Do you have a, another poem to share? Yeah, I'm uh, going, this is an example of one of my sort of personal poems. About four years after my wife died, my grieving process reached a point at which I started to notice other human beings and find a few of them attractive again. And this was a very encouraging moment because it showed me that my, you know, that, that, that I was moving on and there was perhaps light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, I, what happened was that uh, I got a ridiculous, futile rabbit in the headlights crush on a young man who worked behind the counter at a fast food place. And I'm 63, by the way. I mean, nothing was ever going to happen, but it was like, oh, well done, Ken. You've chosen a, a very good target here. And, <laughs> and uh, so this is, um, this is the resulting poem. It's called contactless. You shouldn't, but you're walking into Subway. It's a festival of carbs you know you're going to regret, and those gloves may be hygienic, but they're single use and they must get through hundreds in a day. But hell, it's cheap and hassle-free, and right now you're just not cut out for complications. Not now you've seen him, the new boy behind the counter. The reason you're at this branch for the eighth time in two weeks the reason you're at this branch, not the one in the arcade, in spite of that one being down the hill, not half so busy and a great deal more convenient for the bus. The reason you've hung back, let someone else get served before you, made it certain you and he will synchronize. It's the eyes. Of course, it's always been the eyes with you and his are proper drowners. Not that he lets you get to see them much. Keeps them downcast, mostly. Busy, focused on the job. Well, fair enough, you think. That knife is sharp. Nearly as sharp as your own shame at what a punchline you've become. What is he? Nineteen? Twenty at a push? Dear God, you're tragic. 
when will you grow up? And now it's your turn and you're praying maybe this time you won't stammer like you've done three times already when he holds you with that shy half smile. The one like sunlight just broke through a cliche. Don't tell me. Let me guess. The usual. Oh my God, he knows you've got a usual. He checklists the ingredients to be certain. No mistakes. You watch his hands, bedazzled as he busies with the salads, deft and dexterous like a close-up magic trick. The gloves come off. You notice that his nail varnish is new. Imagine an alternative reality in which you comment casually on this, the light, inconsequential conversation that might feasibly ensue. But now he's through, is done with you, already busy with the next one in the queue. Tapped in, checked out, pocketing your card, you call out, thanks. He glances up, he smiles. And you head out to the waiting day, glad, just for the now, to be hungry, to be here, to be alive. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. That was Ken Cumberledge taking us all along on the emotional journey of that last poem. Ken is a regular at poetry events in Norwich and online. He also posts lots of poetry recordings and videos which are well worth checking out. You can find details at poetrynonstop.com along with the details of the writing prompts. As always, please share your responses to the writing exercise. You can send them to poetrynonstop at gmail.com. We had some great responses to John Osborne's exercise on the last podcast, which you can see online now. Thanks to everyone who sent those in. I look forward to sharing some abracadabra poems soon. Until next time, thank you for listening and keep writing.